All right. Parents, we are going to be in Romans chapter 11 today. If you got your Bibles, go ahead, open them up. What I just gave to the kids is a very, very short, abbreviated, uh, light version of what we're going to dig into. Romans 11, we got some heavy lifting to do today, and yet some of those themes we certainly find in here. So will you pray with me, and then we're going to dig in. Heavenly Father, we love you, we worship you, we want to know your word because we know that your word gives us clarity about who you are. And God, we know that it's important for us to know you in truth and in clarity because when we have mistruths about you or mistruths about what you've revealed inside of our hearts, it leads us towards misdirected worship. And God, we don't want that. So Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take the words I preach and may they stick in such a way that you use them to form genuine faith in our people. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I remember when I was a newer Christian, I, you know, some of you guys know my story. I came to faith in Jesus when I was about 18 years old, and a lot of the church stuff, the church culture, was kind of brand new to me at that time. I, I really hadn't been around church the way that uh, many of the folks in our church had been before. And I remember walking through a church early on in my faith and seeing a flag of Israel, the country of Israel, on the walls of the church. I think it was shortly after that, I remember driving by another church. I, I don't know where we were driving to, but there outside the church, they had on the flagpole, they had the flag of Israel flying outside their uh, church. And, and I remember thinking this was strange at first. Like, I know that, you know, I didn't know my Bible all that well at this point when I was 18. And I, I knew that Israel had a big part of what took place in the Bible. But why would a church have a flag of Israel? As I got older and I began to learn more about the way things work, I, I learned that some of, the, uh, some of the most well-funded lobbying groups for the nation of Israel are actually found all through the Bible Belt of America. Isn't that interesting? Some of the, the most money that's going towards Israel as a nation is coming right out of the Bible Belt in America. And if you think about politics, I mean, the nation of Israel floods our conversations on politics often. I know that for uh, oftentimes political parties and political leaders will appeal to the nation of Israel uh, as an ally. Now, some of that has to do with that the nation of Israel is an ally of ours in the Middle East, and they're a democratic Western-valued uh, uh, country in the Middle East, and so there's, you know, actual political reasons for it. But some of the appeal also is to the religious people in America who have strong ties, connections, and beliefs about the nation of Israel and what God is doing in Israel. It's interesting. Oftentimes, we don't have an understanding of what God is up to in Israel, do we? I think sometimes we in the modern church, we, we see these pieces and we begin to put it together, but we don't actually have a theology, a rich theology of what God has done in Israel, what God is doing in Israel, and what God will do in Israel. Do you have an idea about what the Bible says about this, about the, the, the nation of Israel and the church? What I want to show you today is actually that God has said a lot about this. And actually what I'm going to argue for is that it's not so much about the nation of Israel as in the geographic land of Israel as a political entity, but rather of the people of Israel, those who are descended from Abraham. So when I speak today about Israel, I'm less interested and concerned about the actual nation itself and more speaking about the people, the descendants of Abraham from all over the world. Now, 
Today, Romans 11 is the most clear chapter in the entire Bible of what God is doing in Israel right now. I mean, this is the chapter. Certainly, you can go through other places in the New Testament especially, but if you want to have a very clear understanding of it, Romans 11 is where you go. Now, a little background. What's with Israel? What's with Israel? If you remember, Israel is... Uh, the, the nation that God chose in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is everything that was written in the Bible before Jesus' birth, okay? The, the Old Testament closed about 400 years before the birth of Christ. So it, it's a recording of all of Israel's history. And they were called the people of God in the Old Testament. God had chosen them to be a blessing to the nations. And what we know about Israel when you study them is that they're a bit like a microcosm of sorts, they, when you study all about Israel in the Old Testament, you learn something about yourself. You learn something about God. When you look in on the people of Israel in the Old Testament, you see how God relates to people. You see how God keeps covenants with people. You see the sinful tendencies of humanity and all the different types of sin that people can do. You see how God can consistently reach out to people and yet they can have stubborn hearts and, and not receive what God's doing. You see how God sends prophets to direct his people. They are like a microcosm of all of the people of God. That includes today Gentiles and Jews as well. Now if you've read the Old Testament, you remember that their job, that in the Old Testament, God chose the people of Israel, all the descendants of a man named Abraham, in order to be a blessing to the nations. The idea was that as the nations who did not know God looked in on Israel, they would be like a bright light in the entire world. That the nations would literally look in on them and they would look and say, surely when they would see all their laws and all their love of God and the way their civilization worked, surely there is a God among them. And then the nations would come to saving faith in the God of the Bible as well. And all through the Old Testament, God would send his prophets to the people of Israel. And he say this, don't take your eyes off of what your purpose is, Israel. You were always designed to be a light to the nations. And if you fail to do that, if you make God something he's not, if you worship false gods, if you don't live justly, if you don't take care of all the things I've told you to do, God can take away that special privilege that you have. Those were the prophetic warnings. Let me read to you from Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 6. This is an Old Testament prophet writing to the Jewish people, recording what God says to the people of Israel in the Old Testament when they had begun to take their eyes off God. He says, I spread my hands out all the day to a rebellious people, speaking to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. They weren't supposed to do that. You make your sacrifices in the temple. Who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places and who eat pig's flesh. They weren't supposed to be eating pork. And broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me for I am too holy for you. Do you see the spiritual pride inside of them? I'm too holy for you. This is the prophet now warning Israel. These are a smoke in my nostrils, says God. A fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. Indeed, I will repay into their lap. That passage is one of many passages that depict God's fury against a disobedient Israel. 
And in Romans 9 to 11, we really unpack what is going on today. We, 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 we begin to unpack that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, Israel had disobeyed God's command, taken their eyes off what God had commanded them to do. And now we are living in the reality of fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. Here in chapter 11, what we're going to study today, Paul answers the question head on of what God is doing today with ethnic Israel. What are we to believe about them? And the whole passage, in my opinion, is centered around these verses in verses 25 and 26. Let me read it to you. They're tough to hear without the full context, so just hear it through. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Notice how there's mystery here. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. A partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel. What that means is that there's a a, a, a bit of a mysterious spiritual blinding that has come over ethnic Israel that makes them unable to receive Jesus as their Messiah. Remember, Jesus was of Jewish origin. He was the fulfillment of all their prophecies. He was the end of the law, what it all pointed to. And yet, a partial hardening has come over ethnic Israel so they cannot believe. Now, what I want to do today, the framework for my message is this. I'm going to work through chapter 11, and I want to show you three insights for understanding this partial hardening that Romans 11 speaks of, this partial hardening that's come on ethnic Israel. Insight number one, Israel's hardening is real, but not total. Israel's hardening is real, but not total. Now, what do I mean by that? Today, just as the Bible said in the New Testament, there is still a remnant When I say it's not total, not every ethnically Jewish person has been blinded to not receive Jesus as their Messiah. There is still a remnant of ethnic Jews who today believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Pick up with me, Romans 11, verses 1 and 2. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Now, if you've been tracing with us, Romans 9 to 11, this is a common thing Paul does. He asks a question like a rhetorical question, and then he basically stamps his foot down and he says, by no means. I think that's the fifth or sixth time we've seen that so far. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. So the question is, has God just rejected the Jewish people? I mean, if Jesus was ultimately their Messiah, even though he was a Messiah for all the world, if he was their Messiah and they're largely rejecting him, as God rejected his people, Paul says, look at me. Paul's the author who wrote the book of Romans. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm a prime example. I'm Jewish by birth. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He goes, I'm as Jewish as it gets. I studied as a Pharisee underneath Gamaliel, who's one of the great Pharisees in history, one of the great religious teachers in history. He gives his credentials, just like he does in other places of the New Testament. He says, I'm Jewish, and I believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He goes, so my very life, verses 1 and 2 are saying, my very life, me, Paul, the author of Romans, the fact that I'm Jewish and I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, shows you that God's rejection of ethnic Israel is not total. At the very least, there's me, says Paul. But then he goes on. The question becomes, yeah, but basically, that's such a small remnant, right? One person of all ethnic Israel? That's such a small remnant. And Paul goes further. He says, no, there's more than just me. 
And he points us back to an Old Testament story of Elijah. Now, if you know the story of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he lived a very dangerous life. He oftentimes had very hard things to say to the political leaders of his day to the point that he was persecuted greatly and oftentimes would fall into seasons of depression and seasons of fearing for his life. Listen to what he says in recalling this moment from Elijah's life. He says, do you not know, this is the end of verse 2, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? He says, Lord, This is what Elijah said. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. That's Elijah. And they even seek my life. Elijah's saying, if they kill me, there'll be no one left. Everything about ethnic Israel will be forgotten. But what does God say to him in the Old Testament? Verse 4. God says, Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to to Baal. So too, says Paul, so too, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. The reality is, is that Elijah could not see what was taking place. He was just a man. He had limited vision of what was actually taking place. He thought he was the only ethnically Jewish person who was truly trusting in God. As he looked out over all the ethnic Jews in Israel, all he could see in his day, this is hundreds of years before Jesus, all he could see in his day, Elijah's day, was people going by the title Jewish, descendants from Abraham, who were far from God, who... who, who were simply claiming the title Jewish without having any real faith in the God of the Bible. He thought he was all alone. But God, who had no blinders on his eyes and could see the hearts of all people, knew that there were 7,000 men in Elijah's day who not only were descended from Abraham, but who had real saving faith in the God of the Bible. So too today, says Paul. Today, just as in Paul's day, all across the globe are those who are ethnically descended from Abraham. Isn't this amazing? Ethnically descended from Abraham, who are Jewish, who also have believed in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of their prophecies, of their old covenant, and are believers in the God of the Bible. Today, we call them Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews. And they're Jewish people. There's congregations all over the world who, of folks all over Chicago, in fact. There are Messianic Jewish congregations filled with ethnic Jews who take Jesus as their Messiah. Even within our own congregation at Park Community Church and at Park South Loop, we have a number of folks who are ethnically Jewish yet claim Jesus as their Messiah. That's exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying while many ethnic Jews have turned their back and have not accepted Jesus as the fulfillment of all their scriptures. Not all of them have done that. Some have. What's the point here? Verses 7 and 8. Let me read it to you. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. He gave him a spirit of stupor. See, not everyone who is descended from Abraham is truly Israel. 
Paul talks about the elect. Again, this is going back to Romans chapter 9, that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. There is a spirit of stupor, a blinding effect, a mysterious blinding effect that has come over ethnic Israel that has blinded many Jews from seeing Jesus as their Messiah. And yet, this blinding is not total. It's not total. There is still a remnant even today. God's word is true. It never fails. Insight number two. Ethnic Israel's hardening has redemptive purposes. Ethnic Israel's hardening has redemptive purposes. So you might be asking, what's the point? Why why would God harden ethnic Israel's heart so that they wouldn't receive Jesus as their Messiah? Well, he goes on to answer that. Verses 11 and 12. Let's continue. So I ask then, right? Here's another question. So I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Fascinating language. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, from those two verses, I see two results from Israel's hardening. The first one is this, that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, whom was revealed to Moses, whom was revealed to Abraham, who spoke to all the prophets in the Old Testament. As a result of the hardening that's come upon Israel, the the message of the Bible, the God of the Bible, has now gone out to all the nations, right? That was Jesus' final command. Go to all the nations, teaching them to obey you. And right in the beginning of Acts, we see the apostles going all to the nations. As a result of the hardening of Israel, the word of God is going out to Gentiles. A Gentile is anyone who is not ethnically descended from Abraham. You got to realize this for a moment. You and I, for the most part, most of the people at Park Community Church or in evangelical churches across America are Gentiles, not Jewish, not descended from Abraham. You and I, for the most part, unless you are actually descended from Abraham or ethnically Jewish, are part of the so that, part of the result of the spiritual blindness that's come upon ethnic Israel This church is a part of the progressive growth of God's kingdom, the kingdom of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, into all Gentile territories across the globe. Remember for a moment, if you know your Old Testament, remember this was all prophesied in the Old Testament. Let me read to you one of the more fascinating prophecies in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 19, verses 24 and 25. In that day, now this is the prophet looking forward, to the day when the Messiah would rule and reign. That's the day you and I are living in, okay? He says, in that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands. Okay, now, if you know this, If you know about Egypt and Assyria in the Bible, those were two of the deepest enemies of the people of God, of the ethnic Jews in the Old Testament. Egypt, they enslaved Israel for 400 years. Remember Pharaoh would not let the people of God go? Assyria captured 
and, and took as refugees from their land, the Israelites. They were some of the harshest enemies. And yet Isaiah the prophet says, no, no, there's coming a day. There's coming a day when even Egypt and Assyria will be called my people. See, that was once a privilege only for those who were ethnic Israel, my people. But now the nations underneath the rule and the reign of the Messiah are coming into saving faith in God. That's our day. You and I are living in the day of fulfilled prophecy right now. All through Egypt, as we speak, the gospel is working. People are trusting in the God of the Bible. It's amazing. All through the land where Assyria was, the gospel is going. The gospel is going forth. And Gentiles, who were not the original blessed people, are now receiving the blessing of salvation. It's incredible. You and I are alive in that time period. The second result is that as the nations of the world increasingly and progressively learn about Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the same God of the Old Testament, Ethnic Israel will ultimately become jealous. Did you hear that language in there? God gave them, um, sorry, verse 11. So I asked, did they stumble in order that might fall? By no means, rather through their trespass, salvations come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Here's what's going to happen. As Gentiles, nations come into saving faith in the God of the Bible, the proclamation of that all these promises that were originally to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and now they're claiming it, you're claiming it, you're believing in it. The nations are believing in the God of the Bible. There will come a day when that will provoke ethnic Israel to such jealousy that they will want what the nations have. They'll want it so bad, and actually there will one day, we'll get to that in just a moment, be a great revival among ethnic Israel. Well, they will trust in Jesus as their Messiah. Now, I have to ask you this question. Does your faith make anyone around you jealous? I mean, if the promise is that as the Gentiles come into saving faith in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that eventually the Jews will look in on Gentiles worshiping who's supposed to be their God, realize they missed the Messiah, and be made jealous about the faith in the true Messiah that the Gentiles have. Is your faith causing anyone to be jealous? Remember, do we put our light under a basket? No. We live it outwardly to the world so that they can see our good works and bring glory to God. See, I wonder if our faith is not making anyone jealous, what, what are we getting wrong? People ought to be looking in on your life. They ought to be seeing your life, how you love, how you live, how you work, how you worship, how you're a part of your community, that your whole life is built on the blood of Jesus Christ. You have no other hope but him. He is your proclamation day and night. He is your worldview by which you're looking at the world around you and interpreting all things. And when they see your life, it should be so compelling that they're provoked to jealousy and they say, I gotta have what he has. Is that your life? Does your life make anyone jealous? Now, what does this mean for us? What Paul does next, he's been speaking about ethnic Israel and now he turns to the Gentiles and, and he gives them this severe warning passage. Doug Moo, a commentator on this entire book, one of the, a, a great New Testament commentator, he says this is the most severe warning passage in the entire New Testament about living out your faith. Now let me read it to you. It's a bit longer, verses 17 through 24. Let me read it in full, and then I'm going to show you three things I want to pull out of this little section. Speaking to Gentiles, like most of those listening, 
But if some of the branches were broken off, let me back up just a moment. He's using this illustration of a tree. All right, of a tree. Let me start in verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And he goes on, verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, Gentiles, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, speaking of the Gentiles. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? All right, enough text for you in one, in one bite. Let's see if we can make some sense of that. What's Paul saying? He's using this imagery of a cultivated tree. And he says, look, that was the people of God in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. It was the Jewish people. It was a cultivated tree. It was digging deep into the root system, which is the God of the Bible, and it was living out this life. However, they disobeyed. Some of those trees became, those branches became rotted. And God cut those branches off. And in their place, he took wild branches. That's Gentile nations who did not know God, were not seeking God, did not have God's law. They were wild branches. If you're not ethnically Jewish, you are one of these Gentiles, a wild branch. And he grafted you in by mercy, by sheer grace, into that cultivated tree. You don't naturally belong in the tree. God chose you, grafted you in, and now you too are being nourished by the root system, which is the God of the Bible. Some branches were cut off so that you could be grafted in. Get that clarity? Now, let me pull out three things this ought to do to you. Remember, this is a warning passage to Gentiles. Number one, Gentiles ought to be incredibly humble. First thing you do with this knowledge is that this should develop an intense sense of humility about you. Verse 18, do not be arrogant towards the branches. He's saying, look, if you're a wild branch, you weren't seeking God. You were totally depraved. That's earlier Romans chapter 5. You had no hope apart from God. You were not even close to God. But God had mercy on you, took you as a wild branch, grafted you in completely unbeknownst, un, against your will at the time. He took you and he grafted you in. You ought to have unbelievable humility. Right? It, that, that ought to just give you a sense of how could I possibly look down my nose at anybody else because Jesus had mercy on a sinner like me. The other thing that should do when we speak of humility, that verse alone, that verse alone, do not be arrogant towards the branches. The branches were ethnic Israel. You're the wild branch that came in. That is the antithesis of anti-Semitism. 
Did you know today in America, the, the number one, and frankly around the globe, but the number one persecuted religious group are ethnic Jews? Number one, the most amount of death threats every year, the most amount of violence done to a religious group in America, hands down, far and away, and it's rising as we speak. It's been rising intensely for about 10 years now. As we speak, are ethnic Jews. Do not be arrogant towards the branches. This is not to say that ethnic Jews have saving faith because they don't have the Messiah if they have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But it is to say that there should be an utter humility being aware that the promises, the covenants were made to ethnic Israel and not to Gentiles in the Old Testament. There's no room for anti-Semitism. That's completely outside of God's idea. Gentiles, number two, ought to be fearful. Verse 20. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. This word fear is not like the way we oftentimes speak of fear in like the sense of a deep respect. Usually when we talk about fear in the Bible, that's what we're talking about, deep respect. No, this means tremble in fear. Don't don't miss it. God is kind, but he is stern. You better know that God lopped branches off for you to come in. You ought to have a sense of real fear of the God of the Bible who is over all things. He is sovereign. He controls every molecule that moves in this universe. He is over it all. He is over your life. And you ought to have a real fear, a love, a cherishing, but a knowledge that he is not like you. He is far superior to you. Number three, Gentiles ought to run to Jesus while there is time. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. Uh, But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. We are in a window of time right now. The window started at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it will close on the day God has appointed. It is a short window of time where God is bringing Gentiles into saving faith. That window will not last. And I want to appeal to you, if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that window will not last forever. Time is short. Your life does not last infinitely on this earth. It lasts eternally after you pass, but you only get one life, says the book of Hebrews, and then judgment. The window is short for Gentiles to come into saving faith. And I want to appeal to you, do not miss the window God has given you. If you are alive and you are breathing right now, you have time to repent and trust in the God of the Bible that Jesus Christ, death on the cross, his blood is the necessary atoning sacrifice for your sins because you stand condemned before a holy God because of your sin. And no one can get out of that judgment. I don't care what you think is true, whether or not you believe a judgment is coming, whether or not you even believe in God, there is a judgment after you die. And you either are standing underneath the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven for your sin, or you are standing by yourself before a holy God, presenting your sin to him. And if you're standing by yourself, you will be found guilty and you will pay the consequence for your sin. But if you will receive Jesus... He not only forgives you of your sin because of his death and resurrection, but he gives you life to the full, life walking and abiding in God. Do not miss your window. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. What's this section of chapter 11 saying? It's saying that Israel's hardening has redemptive purposes. In the grand history of God's redemptive plan, there was a purpose to it. Number three, and let me close on this. Israel's hardening is not final. It's not final. 
You know, as you look out over America today, there's people that are all over the map. I mean, we're about as divided as certainly I've seen, but uh, it's, it's pretty difficult out there today, politically, and when we think of our nation as a whole. There are some that are convinced that what once was called United America is hanging on by a thread, that there's not much uniting us, and that frankly, we have passed our peak as a nation, and that we are headed only to more and more division, if not worse. And others are saying, no, 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 America's going to have a great future. We're going to find something and we're going to unite again and we're going to actually move forward and be stronger as we get through this on the other side. The reality is that nobody knows. God knows. But no living person knows what God's plan for America is. We can hope, we can pray, and we should pray that we find unity, that we move through our issues and we, we, we move towards more godly society on the other end. But nobody knows what the plan for America is. Not the case with ethnic Israel. We know full well what God's plan for ethnic Israel is. It's kind of amazing. God has told us exactly what he's going to do. Romans 11, verses 25 through 28. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it's written, then he quotes the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, the Jews, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that's Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he ha- may have mercy on all. Paul says a partial hardening has come upon ethnic Israel. Many Jews today are unable to see that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. The reason is so that the Gentiles can come in the fullness. Every one of God's elect from all the nations will come in. And that window is temporary and the hardening that has come over Israel is temporary. Israel's hardening is not final. Here's what's going to happen. Once the fullness of all the Gentile nations have come in, once God has gathered his elect from all the corners of the world, once every nation, tongue, and tribe, remember you hear us talk about that all the time, every nation, tongue, and tribe has come into saving faith in the God of Bible, there will come a day right towards the end when ethnic Israel as well. They will probably be one of the last nations, one of the last nations to receive, but once the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, ethnic Israel will have a great revival. Not necessarily the land, the country we refer to as Israel, but the Jews spread out around the globe, wherever they are, will have a great revival as they trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah after they have been made jealous because of Gentiles' faith. When will that day come? Anybody who tells you that date is lying and does not know. Many people have tried to tell you the date in the past. They have predicted years that have come and gone and nobody knows that exact date. But you can rest assured that that future will happen. It was written by God and God's word does not fail. See, God's, God's kingdom 
is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, but it's growing to become the biggest of all the trees in the forest. As God's word goes through the nations, it Christianizes wherever it goes. It brings justice wherever it goes. It brings peace wherever it goes. It casts out Satan and his demons wherever it goes. It it grows peace and joy in the Lord wherever it goes. And it literally overtakes cultures and societies. Oh, that's your Christian faith. You want to be living that out right now in your local space, wherever you are. And as it grows and takes over, one of the last nations, ethnic Israel, will be to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in that way, all of God's elect will be saved. Isn't that amazing? God's got this unbelievable plan that he's working out to a T through history. Now, as I close this out, I want to read these last few verses. As I read, you know, whenever I read and and we read about prophecy and we think about what is to come, you you ought to have a sense of awe, wonder, and mystery that you are living in a time period where we have God's revealed word telling you what is to come. You ought to worship as a result of that. And that's exactly what Paul does when he closes this out. It's almost like he's just peered into the future And then he just falls on his knees in utter astoundment and he cries this out. And let me close by saying this prayer from Paul. It's this great doxology. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we love you. God, we recognize that as we dig into a chapter like Romans 11, we are peering into truths that you have revealed to us that are very difficult to understand. And so God, I pray that my words that I preached would be found on fertile soil, that they would produce worship in the people of God, that many would come to saving faith as a result. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.